Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's time for the Bible Geek. I am that geek. Robert M. Price. Robert M. Price. Postmodern, deconstruct, super-powered demigod. What, another Bible geek already? Yes, and I am Robert M. Price, the Bible geek, eager to answer some of your questions or at least bluff my way through them. Hey, this from a fellow Bob. He says, uh, well, it has to do with the Gospel of John. Why would the disciples need any paraclete at all to lead them if Jesus was supposed to return during their lifetimes? Were they considered so incompetent by the Gospel writers that they needed someone to hold their hands for the short time before Jesus showed up? In that case, Jesus really was a lousy human resources director. Was it developed after... Oh, wait a minute. Was it editorial fatigue or just sloppy editing? Or maybe the idea of the paraclete was developed after Jesus didn't show up. We know that the early writings were re-edited to cover the failure of Jesus to return more than once. And just when will the stars be right? Uh, Of course, uh, Bob could mean when will they be right for the return of Jesus, but I'm pretty sure he's thinking of that other returning apocalyptic entity, Cthulhu. And who the heck knows? I guess uh, there could be a Lovecraftian version of Harold Camping uh, who would uh, tell us when, but... I guess it would be just as risky to believe him. Okay, uh, you pointed to a very interesting thing, the um, the um, implicit point of there being a paraclete at all, implying the abandonment of any belief in at least an imminent second coming. And uh, and then the editing. Yeah, the Gospel of John, as Bultmann points out, certainly appears to have been edited by the ecclesiastical redactor. I would assume that's Polycarp. And, uh, and one of the things edited was that the Gospel of John originally was Gnostic in character, and uh, embraced realized eschatology. That is, this is it. The kingdom of God has, in fact, dawned, and uh, one must be born from above in order to see that. Very much like in the Gospel of Thomas, right? Uh, The disciples say, when will the repose of the dead come? And he says to them, uh, what you expect has already come, you just don't recognize it. And uh, so forget about any future. Remember at the Last Supper, or Philip or somebody, maybe it was the disciple uh, Mortimer or Poindexter, I forget which, says to him, uh, uh, Jesus says how his father and he will come to dwell with anyone who believes, etc. And and, uh, Mortimer asks him, uh, what has happened, Lord, that you will reveal yourself only to us and not to the world? 
huh? Well, I'll tell you what's happened. Uh, no parousia, right? Uh, but that is clearly a statement that uh, you know, the the, uh, the things have changed. At least the expectation has changed. Uh, way back in, uh, oh, geez, what was it, chapter 6, chapter 7? I forget now. I'm going senile. Um, I need the paraclete to bring this back to my remembrance. Uh, we have uh, Jesus say, the hour is coming and is now here uh, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. It's now here? Uh, yeah, uh, because this is the resurrection. Uh, the uh, Baha'u'llah said the same thing about the advent of the Bab, the, the hidden imam, etc., who was his predecessor. He said, uh, look, uh, don't make the same mistake that religious uh, literalists in the past have made. Uh, this guy was the hidden imam, and he did bring about the golden age. You just need to see it and get with the program. Um, but, you know, people did become literalistic, and so the ecclesiastical redactor is added to the same chapter. Uh, don't be surprised at this, because the hour is coming when the dead in their graves will hear the voice of the Son of God and come forth to answer for what they did. In other words, it's simply a, re a restoration of um, the failed, disappointed hope for the second coming. Notice the way it's put. There's no statement that it is now come. The hour is coming. It does this in this version. It doesn't say it's arrived, and it specifies not spiritually dead, but the dead in their graves. Yeah, the rotting corpses. Let's make that clear, right? So there is this. Uh, this bowdlerizing, this, um, is that how you say that word? Uh, and uh, that uh, they're trying to erase the original realized eschatology. Why didn't they just erase it? Well, because the gospel must have circulated in at least a couple of editions, and what we have is a is a conflation of the uh, the uh, gnosticizing and anti gnosticizing versions, just to get everything in. Don't want to risk leaving out any. Um, so, uh, and then there's another one in chapter eleven, the resurrection of Lazarus where um, Lazarus is croaked and Jesus shows up and uh, Lazarus' sister says, uh, Lord, had you been here, my brother wouldn't have died. You know, where the heck were you? And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection. Whoever lives, whoever believes in me will uh uh, boy, what is it? Whoever lives and believes in me will... Oh, I, I got it. Uh, whoever believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Um, I know uh, most manuscripts say I am the resurrection and the life, but uh, some have simply I am the resurrection, which I suspect is the original reading. It certainly sounds better. <laughs> um, that's, of course, a major... Uh, factor in textual criticism doesn't sound better it just 
kidding. Uh, um, but uh, the point is, oh, yeah, she says, oh, yeah, I, I know he'll rise at the resurrection of the last day. Yeah, big deal, cold comfort. But Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection. Okay, he goes on to literally raise Lazarus from the dead. But uh, the point is, y- you don't need to wait for any end time resurrection. This is it now. Uh, and uh, once it, everything is, once eschatology is redefined in this manner, uh, the only return you're going to get, in return in quotes, is the coming of the paraclete. And as Bultmann suspected, that has to mean uh, another human being, uh, born as others are, uh, who is has come to unpack the teaching of Jesus, an inherently Gnostic sort of a view. Uh, Jesus gave the exoteric, the public truth, but I'm going to give you the esoteric truth. This is a pattern we find in uh, Gnostic, uh, Ismaili, and Druze doctrine, that God sends revealers in pairs, uh, one to give the outer preaching, the, the other the inner meaning. This is what Derrida calls the dangerous supplement. When uh, someone professes to simply be Uh, adding on clarification or whatever to an already existing idea or institution or whatever, but in fact winds up subverting and replacing it because what is ostensibly added to it transforms it or negates it. And... uh, and so that's that's what that's why the Gospel of John is so different, and why other Gnostic Gospels are so different than the Synoptics. And uh, so, again, you know, what does he say about the coming of the Spirit of Truth, the Paraclete? He will take. He says, "There's a lot of stuff I wish you thick heads could understand now, but that's hopeless. Don't worry, I'll send the Paraclete, and he will convey uh, my truth to you, and so forth." Uh, and so, yeah, the the very existence the, uh, of the uh, the very premise for the appearance of the Paraclete is realized eschatology that there's not going to be some every eye will see him um, scenario, right? That uh, he's not going to rend the heavens and all of that. No, no, no. It's it's happening now. So uh, that, I think you you uh, you hit it right on the the denarii there. Um. Uh, so, okay, uh, thanks, Bob, fellow Bob. I tell you, those guys named Bob. There's something about that name. Okay, here's David Shipley in Seattle. Hope you got your umbrella out there. Uh, what a beautiful city. It's got to be beautiful because the rain must keep it clean all the time. Anyway, he says, I've heard you often express the view that it is necessary, I'm sorry, yeah, that it is necessary to read a variety of scholars with differing opinions to truly have well-formed ideas about biblical criticism, a sentiment I heartily agree with. However, are there any books or authors you feel comfortable simply rejecting based on reputation or first impressions? I recently had evidence that demands a verdict and the case for Christ foisted upon me by relatives, and although I'm trying to be an open-minded Bible geek, two chapters into evidence, and I'm feeling a bit... 
uh, a bit nauseous and doubting if I'd really miss out on anything by dropping this tome into a bin. Do you have any thoughts on skipping certain well-known books, and do you think I should feel any guilt at telling my relatives the authors they gave me simply weren't worth the time of day? No, I don't think you should, and... Uh, it, it all depends, I suppose, on what you mean by first impressions. If I mean, you do have to give a, an author a decent hearing to, to see what they're saying, but it kind of sounds like you've done that when you say that uh, you're cringing at what's being said already. Uh, that certainly implies you can see something wrong there and uh, that it's so wrong-headed that you figure look if it's more of this I'm out of here I don't think that is biased uh, or anything and uh, uh, if you've really gotten a feel for what they're doing and you can and you have real objections to what they're saying I wouldn't waste any more time with them because there's just way too much other good stuff uh, to read like I feel having read uh, N.T. Wrong's uh, Wright's uh, book, uh, The Resurrection of the Son of God, I know the game this guy's playing. What, what's the point? Uh, and that's the case with virtually all apologists, in, in my opinion. Not only are they ritually chanting the same bad arguments, uh, but uh, even if they are uh, bringing up some new stuff, it tends to be axe grinding. You, you know it, what they're doing is just coming up with whatever they can to defend a preconceived notion. If there's anything new being said, as in the Jesus legend by uh, Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy, uh, I do feel obliged to read that. But, uh, but you can see what I make of that in my review essay about that, which I think is in one of John Loftus's uh, books. Um, and uh, after a while, like, you, you've got only so much time. Uh, you might as well check out other authors with different perspectives. And, uh, it, and, and then when that happens, like with uh, John Dominic Crossan, I've read uh, a good bit of his stuff, and I love uh, The Cross That Spoke, a brilliant book. I once had the chance to tell him how much that book uh, meant to me. Uh, it's uh, just extremely interesting. However, I also read his book, uh, Jesus, the Life of a Mediterranean Jewish Peasant or some such thing, and I found that wholly implausible and uh, furthermore, just reiterating stuff that Burton Mack had said in much shorter compass. And I, I think by now I know his uh, approach to Jesus and early Christianity, and I just don't buy it. Same with Richard Horsley. Both these guys are incredibly learned. There's no question about that, but they seem to be kind of grinding their own axe, and uh, though much better than the, apost the apologists do. But uh, I just find, yeah, I think I, uh, I get it. Or I've read enough of Bruce Molina and... Uh, uh, Jerome Nere and and others uh, that I feel like uh, the the uh, this anthropology and social science reading of the Gospels 
that there is some interesting material there, and I'm glad I've read what I've read by them, but uh, they seem to just be pumping out more of the same uh, it, when they take that approach, though both of these guys, also brilliant, are um, doing new stuff as well, and, and that I really appreciate. Now, I love Molina's... Um, the New Testament world. Uh, that's that's just really terrific about anthropology and sociology and early Christianity. Oh, terrific. I love that book. Uh, he did a sequel to it. Jeez, um, what was it? Cultural Anthrop- Anthropology in the New Testament, which I found impenetrably turgid, but the earlier, simpler book I learned a lot from. But he did this book. I often praise uh, the was it the genre and message of the Book of Revelation. That is absolutely fascinating about the total permeation of the Book of Revelation by ancient astrology. Whole different direction, just chock full of great stuff. Uh, similarly, Nere. I hope I'm saying that right. It's N E Y R E Y. It might be Neri for all I know. Like the hero of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I don't know. Uh, but uh, not not trying to make a joke out of that, merely confessing my insulting ignorance. Uh, he wrote a book uh, called An Ideology of Revolt, a really bad title for a fascinating book. You figure, oh my God, not another one of these liberation theology things. Now, don't get me wrong there, I think people ought to read some liberation theology. And uh, zeroing in on Jesus, Juan Luis Segundo's The Historical Jesus of the Synoptics, though I disagree with a whole lot of it, that is well worth reading. But with liberation theology proper, it's sort of like you read one, you read them all. Uh, But... but, um, Nere in this book doesn't take that approach at all. It's about the Gospel of John and how there are various signals of how Johannine Christology uh, may have developed uh, as the conflict between that community and formative Judaism grew from stage to stage. It is innovative and brilliant. So you you got to keep an eye out for uh, you know even new stuff by authors you you think you know. I have to admit I wouldn't waste my time uh, even on a pamphlet by N.T. Wrong anymore. Uh, That's, you know, forget it. Um, uh, Let me see. uh, uh, So, uh, yeah, I do think, like, you've got only so much time. It's sort of a Heideggerian realization. I would uh, start looking into other things. I, I do not feel compelled to read every new apologetic since the new ones are old anyway. Uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, when people fault you for not doing that, I think it's a kind of a delaying tactic. They'd rather keep you embroiled uh, in uh, interacting with, with these axe grinders so you don't get into real New Testament criticism. Uh, so I think that's the way to go. If you're in the uncomfortable position of having to explain to your relatives why you decided to drop these books, uh, then, well, you obviously have objections to them that you can explain to uh, to your to your relatives and say, I'm sorry, uh, this, this thing is wrong-headed and uh, I'm not going to spend any more time on it. 
uh, you could uh, recommend to them that exciting book uh, by some guy named Price called The Case Against the Case for Christ, uh, where I think I uh, do a pretty good job on Strobel's awful, awful book. Uh, I mean, I would say McDowell's is is not as awful as that, though it's pretty awful. Uh, neither one of these guys has a thing to say. It's really disgraceful. Uh, and uh, I mean, there there are people like Ralph P. Martin and I, Howard Marshall, uh, who are interesting conservative evangelicals, F.F. F. Bruce, certainly. And uh, there's some axe grinding going on there, but they're they're intelligent, well-read scholars. Uh, so it's uh, but that's my general approach to it. So. Uh, Good voyaging there, Dave. Um, uh, this next one is... Uh, the next couple are pretty long. Uh, that's okay with me, uh, but I guess maybe I should forewarn you for, well, for whatever reason. Uh, this one, I believe, is... Uh, yeah, Jason Quackenbush. Real good question from him last time, too. He says, I've been thinking about the argument between mythicists and supporters of a historical Jesus theory lately, after having read through the unfortunately acrimonious ongoing debate between Richard Carrier and Bart Ehrman. It seems to me that, at least as a matter of scholarship, aside from the theological question, the real argument is much less fraught than the various partisans of one side or another often seem to insist. As far as I can tell, there is near-complete consensus among everyone, even the most conservative scholars, that some of the material in the Gospel is mythical and not historical. Well, of course, you know, there are maximal conservative uh, people that are essentially apologists um, who uh, who won't admit that any, any of it is mythical but uh, but of course there are more conservative but genuinely critical scholars too okay uh, so there's a wide agreement that some of the material is mythical not historical okay indeed it seems to me that it would be fairly uncontroversial to suggest that the vast majority of scholars would be willing to concede that even most of the material we have in the gospels is not historically rea reliable so what's left for the supposed controversy between mythicists and historicists is merely a question of the remaining material that some believe provides historically useful information, uh, which others believe can be explained as myth-making. I know that part of the goal of the Jesus Seminar was to seek to identify this material from the sayings and acts ascribed to the Jesus character in the Gospels, so at least among seminar members, this basic idea must have been taken for a sound approach." So given, that, uh, given all that, it strikes me that the real work left to be done on the history versus myth question is not to try to, I'm sorry, not to try to construct a sound picture of either the historical Jesus or, to the contrary, an account of the creation of the Jesus myth, but rather to look at each piece of evidence claimed as having some historical value and evaluate the arguments for its historical value as well as the arguments attempting to explain it as a result of myth-making. 
which is to say, contra the assumption that seems to be made by both Carrier and Ehrman in their argument, the controversy is not truly divided along the lines of mythicists versus historicists, but rather should divide on each piece of evidence. Granted, if one is ultimately persuaded that for some piece of evidence that the arguments in favor of myth-making are not strong enough, that commits one to a belief in the historical Jesus. And by the same token, if one finds that each piece of evidence is suitably explained as myth-making, one will be a mythicist. But this distinction strikes me both as uninteresting and incidental to the more valuable inquiry of comparing the pro-myth versus pro-history considerations of the individual texts. Frankly, I don't as much care about how a given scholar comes out on that question as I am interested in what they have to contribute to the primary question of history or myth regarding each piece of evidence from the texts. What is your view? I am under the impression you adopted an approach somewhat like what I've described in your Deconstructing Jesus and Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. Um, The secondary question would be if there are any other writers who have approached the evidence in this way that you would recommend reading. Um, Let's see. I'd say that uh, there are plenty of books that... um, don't get into the the big question was Jesus a myth or a historical individual but that I mean it's just off the table and not even dealing with it but that uh, do take a real close look at uh, at what's in there bit by bit and of course the classic one is uh, Bultmann's History of the Synoptic Tradition Uh, that's a really great one there's a huge book by uh Gerd Ludemann, I think just called Jesus, a massive book, and of course worth every page, Ludemann is always great, uh, and uh, that does that. Um, oh, let's see. Crossan's book, In Fragments, The Aphorisms of Jesus, is real good uh, on on that score. And uh, there are uh, others, but those would be, especially Bultmann, um, let me see. Um, actually, the the um, issue of historicity versus mythicism does have its own dimension that the passage-by-passage passage scrutiny uh, lacks. Now, the two do have something to do with each other, obviously, because as I've said, one thing that pushed me toward mythicism was the uh, the close scrutiny of all the gospel stories and sayings that it's it seemed to me that there were virtually none of them that uh, passed uh, the various tests that there were so many anachronisms so many signs of borrowing uh, and and so forth that uh, while some of it might go back to Jesus and you couldn't prove that it didn't that wasn't much to to build on I mean often particular sayings are multiply attested uh, among the rabbis. The same saying will be credited to this one and that one and the other one, and you get the impression it's because it just goes around. I was reading a manuscript of a friend, and he said that um, he credited to 
oh, I can't think of the name now, uh, somebody the uh, saying Christianity has not so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and not tried. And I said, you know, I think that was G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote back and said, oh, sure was. Uh, I, I got it from this other author quoting Chesterton, and I missed the original attribution the first time through. That sort of thing still happens, right? And uh, so um, y- you have to wonder, if, if, like if the Mishnah has loads of instances of um, the saying... Uh, the Sabbath was made for you. You were not made for the Sabbath. Well, you wonder which of the several rabbis to whom it is attributed may have originated it. And then you got to ask, well, wait a minute. Is uh, Were early Christians aware of this saying and decided, well, I don't know who said it. I guess it must have been Jesus. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. There's just no way to tell. Well, he might have said it, but who the heck knows? So there's the, and, and the, the stories that seem to me to, to be very likely, virtually all of them, to be rewrites of Old Testament stories. What have you got left? And then you begin to say, how come there was this, this, uh, this flood of uh, fictive uh, material? Uh, was there, I mean, was there a real Jesus that everybody forgot about or whatever? So, yeah, there is a relation to, to, to starting out saying, now I'm going to separate uh, the, the authentic seeming stuff from the dubious stuff and and then finding out Jesus it's all so dubious was there even a Jesus yeah there is a kind of a of a uh, question there and and I reject the deductive approach of saying well since I know there was no historical Jesus I can write off all of this stuff now that'd be ridiculous um, you, you can't uh, do that uh, convincingly I don't think but the the uh, thing you that that is a bit different is like Bultmann, for instance, deals with the resurrection stories, and he says that uh, well, uh, yeah, it's true. The history of religion school uh, made a pretty good case. A lot of this stuff does sound like Gnosticism and mystery cult legends and so forth. But to Bultmann, that didn't mean that there was no historical Jesus. He simply said, well, Jesus made such a big impact on people that they interpreted him uh, in the uh, categories that uh, the religions of their day provided. Uh, He didn't uh, think that meant it was all a myth. And I I realize the analogy between this and what I just said. You you see enough of the life of Jesus conforming to the mythic hero archetype that you begin to wonder what is left. If there was a Jesus, he's lost now. But then, if, if the whole thing seems to fit the mythic archetype, you do have to ask, well, in this case, is not positing a historical Jesus at the root of it and irrecoverable, a superfluous hypothesis. Isn't it a fifth wheel on the car? Uh, Using Occam's razor, you have to say, well, since the whole darn thing uh, seems to fit myth and borrowing and fictive rewriting of the Old Testament, 
it seems adequate to say, yeah, this was a myth like these others. Nobody thinks there was a real Attis or a real Krishna or a real Mithras. Why isn't it more like that? And so this big picture issue is uh, at uh, at issue between uh, Richard and Bart. And uh, it is unfortunate that it's acrimonious, um, but uh, still there, there's uh, a, a real debate there. As you're admitting, of course. So I, uh, I think that uh, it's not an either-or thing. The, the two approaches do dovetail. The big picture, does it look like we're dealing with a myth here or a, a mythologized historical individual like Caesar Augustus? That's important. And then so is the Jesus seminar type scrutiny which is on the assumption that there was an itinerant teacher and prophet in the time of Pontius Pilate, uh, are there things that seem anachronistic? Like, uh, could such a figure be telling you that since you know Jesus carried his cross to Golgotha, you'd better do the same in your daily life? Wait a minute. Uh, how could anybody in the scene have understood what he was talking about? Well, it's obviously aimed at the reader by a Christian writer who's simply putting this into the mouth of Jesus. And there are various things like that. Wait a minute. Assuming there was a Jesus in uh, Galilee in, uh, in this time period, is it really feasible to suggest he would have been debating with the scribes over the text of the Greek Septuagint? <laughs> Come on. Somebody just didn't realize what they were doing and uh, left this uh, clue to the fictitious, fictitious character of it. So I think I certainly beat you in length with that one. Uh, so uh, that's the way I look at it, if that's even coherent. So I think there still is a debate to be held at that level. Okay. Um, uh, it's time for another mini Reuven Geek. Uh, he says, my question concerns Doeg, the Edomite, chief herdsman, or should that be chief headsman uh, to, to King Saul. Due to the lack of historical evidence for Saul and Saul's court, I was wondering what you thought of Doeg the Edomite being a reference to or allegory of the Edomites sacking the temple and killing the priests during the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. Well, it, it has to remain speculative, and it's not as obvious a case of, of what I'm about to mention, but it uh, sure would fit the the ethnological legends of the Old Testament clustered in Genesis, but not restricted to Genesis, namely using a character as a kind of political cartoon symbol of a particular clan or nation or whatever, right? The, all these stories connecting up Abraham and Lot and uh, Ishmael and so on and so on do seem to be political charters trying to link together as blood brothers distinct groups from the writer's own time or the storyteller's own time in order to seal the deal because they've now made a military alliance or established trade relations or whatever so they to, to, to seal that they would say well, you know we really have an ancestor in common here exactly the same thing you find in I think first Maccabees 
where uh, when the Hasmoneans call on Sparta to uh, help them out against the Seleucids, they, they suddenly discover that the Spartans and the Jews have common ancestors. That seems highly unlikely. It's just a sort of political uh, myth. And uh, that's the... Uh, that that may well be the uh, the role of Doeg, could could be, but again, hard to say. Um, let's see another question from Reuven concerning the Muratorian fragment, a Roman canon list from either the second century or the fourth. There's a debate about that. In the fragment, uh, textual fragment. Uh, the author refers to the Apocalypse of John being the predecessor of Paul. Traditionally, this is thought to mean that the author believed the Apocalypse was written by the Apostle John, who himself was the predecessor of Paul, you know, being one of the twelve. However, is it possible that the author believes that the work of the Apocalypse predates Paul? Again, there's no way to know, but it's an interesting speculation, and I like interesting speculations, uh, because there is a theory that the revelation of John is the earliest of the New Testament books, and that you can tell this because the uh, usual trappings of New Testament Christology, etc., are absent. Instead of the, well, you have the Spirit, but you've also got the seven spirits of God, the seven archangels that we meet in the Book of Enoch and various others. You do have the crucifixion of Jesus in a brief st a statement, right? The, the city where their Lord was crucified, but that may be in an, in an interpolated section, chapter 11. But you have a, a weird nativity of Jesus based on the birth of Zeus very clearly, uh, where the dragon is trying to devour him, but they spirit him away. They give wings to the virgin who has borne him, and she's carried into the wilderness. This is right out of uh, the myth of Zeus uh, and, and his mother fleeing from Kronos and all of that. And uh, the reference to Hades as an individual and, and all this, uh, it, it, the, the syncretistic mythology of it, and uh, the fact that... Uh, Jesus is a kind of a he's wielding the scepter of God he's this this divine child and uh, so on it really does make you wonder if this comes from the very early days before we had a historical Jesus Gordon Rylands and others have argued this that uh, Revelation is early and hardly Christian at all a kind of pre-Christian precursor to Christianity uh, and it's you know if that's the case it might well have been remembered for a while and so yeah it could be that the Moratorian canon uh, preserves that uh, third question from Reuven uh, concerning the Apocalypse of Abraham uh, here's a quote about it that Reuven supplies. The, uh, uh, the uh, I think this is Wikipedia, but uh, 
yeah, uh, he doesn't exactly say, it doesn't matter though. The Apocalypse of Abraham is concerned with the future of the Jewish nation Israel. In chapter 29, an ambiguous character known simply as a man appears. The text tells us that some worship this man while others revile him. Uh, he is worshipped even by Azazel, uh, who's obviously supposed to be Satan in this book. Uh, apparently, the man has the task of offering some kind of remission for the heathens in the end of days. According to Jacob Licht, uh, professor of biblical studies, Tel Aviv University, this work is a Jewish text, although not one that represents mainstream rabbinic Jewish thought. Licht writes, so there's a quote within a quote, the most obvious and perhaps the correct explanation of this passage is to declare it a late Christian interpolation. Uh, yet the man does not fit the medieval Christian concept of Jesus. His function is not clearly messianic. The problematic passage, therefore, may have originated in some Judeo-Christian sect which saw Jesus as a precursor of the Messiah, or it may be Jewish, badly rewritten by an early Christian editor. Perhaps it reflects a Jewish view of Jesus as an apostle to the heathen, an explanation which would make it unique and indeed startling. Uh, end of quote. Uh, back to Reuven, my question concerns the apocalypse of Abraham. Again, is it possible that it is written in reaction to the fall of Jerusalem and the loss of the temple? If so, could it be Ebionite in origin? Well, it, it does seem to be a, a reaction to the fall of the temple, which is, quote, predicted, unquote, in it. And uh, most scholars date it between... Um, 70 and about 135, I think, uh, CE. Uh, if, uh, you know, um, let's see, uh, Licht is, is obviously thinking this medieval, this uh, hypothetical interpolation is much later since he describes it as medieval. But we don't have textual evidence for that, though, as I'm always pointing out with the New Testament itself, we we uh, there's a good reason we we might not even if there was funny business because there's no way we have anything approaching an original manuscript we have like six copies in Slavonic whereas the thing was originally probably written in Hebrew uh, and uh, the fact that it's Slavonic in Old Russian implies it was copied or translated. In, from the kindred Greek language. and Well, we don't have any Hebrew or any Greek. We've only got the Slavonic, so there's, it's hopeless to speculate. I'm sorry, it's hopeless to think we can do anything but speculate on uh, interpolations. And uh, that doesn't really even help because uh, you, you can't... I mean, uh, to suggest an interpolation of this kind, you you really would have to say to yourself, like, as Licht does and as you're doing, who would have written this and interpolated it in? Uh, who would have such a view of this uh, shepherd to uh, bring the Gentiles on board with the God of Israel and uh, that, that this person was a Gentile 
and that uh, he was uh, opposed by some and worshipped by others. Well, I uh, kind of think that, and, and your your Ebionite uh, suggestion is not uh, off the, the track because uh, this implies a kind of double covenant, very popular in ecumenical theology today, I like it, um, but Hans Joachim Sheps reads the uh, Ebionite sources of the pseudo-Clementines as suggesting that the Ebionites believe that God had established two covenants, one through Moses, which is completely fine for Jews, even post-Jesus, and one through Jesus, mainly for Gentiles. That would kind of sound like this, but of course the Ebionites would never have countenanced the notion that Jesus was a Gentile. Uh, They thought Paul was a Gentile, and uh, therefore you might wonder if uh, if this is an Ebionite reference to Paul uh, but uh, then again they, they wouldn't have given him a, a, a role in the history of salvation right he was a false apostle to them this sounds very very much like the problem posed by the medieval gospel of Barnabas where um, Jesus is mainly a harmony of the four Gospels with a whole bunch of other stuff thrown in. And in that additional new material, Jesus several times speaks of the future coming of uh, the Messiah, Muhammad. Huh? Uh, so Jesus is the Messiah. He's, uh, he's predicting the Messiah, Muhammad. Uh, who would have written this? The uh, Muslims uh, didn't believe and don't believe that Muhammad is the Messiah. Right? Jesus is the Messiah for Muslims as for Christians. So what the I mean, what somebody who wrote this understood that um, Muslims, and even in the Quran, it says that Jesus predicts the coming of Muhammad, but not as the Messiah. Who would have written this? Does this represent some lost sect? with an otherwise unparalleled piece of theology? Uh, or or uh, is it somebody that just was trying to sound like a Muslim but didn't really understand Islam? And uh, I suspect that's what's going on because as uh, as Rod Blackhurst has definitively shown, the uh, Gospel of Barnabas was written by a Catholic scholar as part of a polemical feud uh, with the church at the time, and he's trying to embarrass the church. Of course, there's a whole lot more stuff in there about John the Baptist and so on that that such a person wouldn't have bothered with. And uh, Blackhurst shows that there was we do have a pretty good candidate for that, uh, namely the Carmelites. Uh, in Palestine, who were big fans of Elijah and John the Baptist, and so on, as precursors of their lifestyle. But uh, what this would re- uh, this is a similar problem. I think that um, Rod Blackhurst has cracked it with uh, the Gospel of Barnabas. This remains to be solved, I think. Uh, but it it sort of sounds as if somebody uh, that it was a sort of double covenant thing written by a Jew who appreciated the uh, 
the uh, function of Christianity and therefore of Jesus to bring Gentiles aboard on Jewish monotheism, even if it's in a Christian form, but someone who had uh, who took for granted a Jewish polemic that I think Matthew was even aware of that Jesus wasn't a Jew, and because um, uh, you know Matthew takes some pains to show that Jesus was not only of Davidic but of Abrahamic descent. Why would you bother with that if people weren't denying it? Uh, so uh, all that to say, it's it's a bit of a mess, and it is a really fascinating thing. One last thing, this thing, a man. Uh, you got to think of the man unnamed who appears to be like John the Baptist in the Slavonic um, Josephus Jewish War. Uh, is that what's going on here in some way? Uh, and uh, also the man who rises from the sea in uh, uh, 4th Ezra and that son of man in Enoch right so it's, it sounds kind of like the same terminology there by the way this is totally off the point but uh, Robert E. Howard wrote this uh, novel Skull Face his sort of his version of Fu Manchu and it's it's been published for many decades now Howard began each chapter with uh, an epigram uh, and uh, from some poet or other, but he stops in the last chapters. Uh, I guess he forgot that he had stopped and uh, submitted it for publication or whatever he did. I think it was posthumously published, I believe. And... uh, so when I was including Skullface in a Robert E. Howard collection for Chaosium, I thought, uh, let me uh, butt in here and supply appropriate bits of poetry for the last few sections that he didn't do. And in the one where Skullface is fished out of the ocean, his mummy case and all that before he comes back to life, I took part of that quote from 4th Ezra about the man rising from the sea who would shake the nations. So in case you ever read that, uh, Robert E. Howard probably didn't know about 4th Ezra, but if he had, I think he would have used that passage. Okay, boy, these apocalypses that didn't make it into the mainstream Bible are really fascinating. Uh, there's also uh, Margaret Barker mentions uh, the apocalypse of Abraham because of the angel Yahoel, who appears to be our old pal, the angel of Yahweh, namely Yahweh himself in human form. Boy, that's great stuff. Okay, um, this is uh, a longie, and a lot of it's autobiographical, but I know many of you enjoy hearing these as I do, so let me. Uh, take some time for this one. Uh, So so interesting. Uh, We all can compare notes here. This is F.J. Taylor who uh, shares his tale with us. I recently encountered your work and have ordered a couple of your books in Kindle format from Amazon, The Case Against the Case for Christ and Killing History. I was interested uh, by your biography and, quote, evolution, unquote, and wondered what you consider yourself to be at this juncture. My own, I'll get to that. My own religious background consists of fairly strong fundamentalist Protestant Christians on my paternal side. I, I nearly read 
parental side, uh, <laughs> what else, right? Sorry, my paternal side, although my father became a non-theist probably early in his teens, but certainly following his World War II experience as a Marine in the Pacific Island campaigns. Uh, by the way, it reminds me of a great skit from Saturday Night Live. They had this fake game show called Who's More Grizzled? And uh, the two contestants, both of them bearded and wearing flannel shirts and so on. One was uh, Garth Brooks, uh, who's, I don't know about his music, but he's a pretty good comedian. Uh, and uh, and uh, Robert Duvall, and uh, so they had to give a little story about uh, you know how grizzled they were, and Garth Brooks's character had some awful tale, and then um, Duvall comes up and says. Uh, uh, on the beaches of Normandy, I never wished as much that there was a God in heaven, and I was never more sure that there wasn't. And uh, he got the the uh, the award. Uh, he's more grizzled. Oh, that sounds like uh, your dad. Okay, and on the other side, strong Irish Roman Catholic on my maternal side, though my mother herself tended toward a laissez-faire and very liberal form of generic Christianity after she left home. Due to an agreement made in order for my parents to become married, we were raised as Roman Catholics, that's the old Rumpelstiltskin clause, and attended Catholic church for several, and for several years Catholic schools. This tended to be more regularly and rigorously practiced when we lived near my mother's staunch Irish Roman Catholic parents. Despite or perhaps because of this early training, I could never really buy into the whole concept even as a child. I was already asking and questioning by at least second grade, and by fourth grade I had for all intents and purposes lost any real belief in any form of Christianity or for that matter any other religion. And believe me, I paid the price in terms of both physical and other punishments. I was a regular visitor to the principal, mother's superior, and even the parish priest, none of whom could answer any of my questions other than to say that I must believe because it was in the Bible and the church teachings, and that if I failed to follow them, I would go to hell. Just this morning on the way home from Hardy's, I was listening to the radio, and they had ACDC Highway to Hell. I guess you were on it. Uh, by the time I was 15, I had already sent a letter of resignation to the to the Pope, John the Twenty Third, arguably one of the best of what I consider a bad lot, signing myself Pagan Jim. I wasn't actually a pagan, not taking paganism any more seriously than I did Christianity. I was just toying with my ancestral Celtic paganism, mainly in order to annoy some family members and other theists who were trying to lure me back into the fold. I was fortunate enough to become engaged in discourse with a maternal uncle by marriage. Bill is a highly intelligent and otherwise very shrewd man who was Jesuit trained with a degree in civil engineering. I later carried on the debate with one of his believer daughters, an honors graduate with a Ph.D. in engineering, sadly uh, taken from us far too early by an aggressive cancer. Debating with Bill required me to think and research my opinions more deeply, enabling me to hold my own in a discussion. Later, 
taking some undergraduate courses in logic in college, I expanded my capabilities further. Over the years since, I honed my techniques in debates with believers, both laymen and clerics of all persuasions, up to and including prelates. My broad range of life experiences, both civilian and military, which included close personal ground combat before, during, and after the siege of Khe Sanh in 1968 in Vietnam, uh, served to both broaden and reinforce my views. And for the record, there are atheists in foxholes, a fact which is well known to anyone, including chaplains who served in close personal ground combat and who is honest about the experience, such as our chaplain at Quezon. Of course, some people gain religion from that experience. At least one of our men later became a minister. Sounds like Father Mulcahy. Uh, Despite being a non-theist, I've always tried to keep an open mind and to be tolerant of other people's views, no matter what I personally may think of them. I've done a fair amount of study about religions and belief systems around the world in an effort to understand them, and as a historian by interest and training, since they have always played such an important part in societal and historical processes. Over the years, I've come to conclude, like some of our framers, Darwin and many others, that while there may be something out there in some form, as with alien life forms, we have no means of determining what it is or what obligations, if any, we may have have to it, given our present state of knowledge. On the other hand, since our knowledge of all fields of science, medicine, etc. is increasing at an exponential rate, there may come a time when we will be able to determine these matters. As for my, sorry, as for my personal philosophy, I remain an atheist slash agnostic, though leaning heavily toward complete disbelief. However, I realize the futility of debate given the current state of knowledge. I'm not a fan of any of the Abrahamic visions of deity, nor would I be under any circumstances. However, I do feel that some of the great truths, such as the golden rule common to so many religions and philosophies, have a certain usefulness in terms of maintaining the social contract. I also feel that the framers were wise in prohibiting the establishment of religion, while allowing free exercise and freedom of conscience to all. However, I feel that they could have gone a few steps further down that road and ensured that religions and indeed all charitable quote-unquote enterprises would not have any tax loopholes and would be strictly forbidden from interfering in government in any capacity whatsoever, clearly stating and completing the separation of church and state. However, I suppose they were lucky to be able to slip through the enactments that they did. In any case, I would be interested to hear what your present state of belief and philosophy is. I look forward to reading your books, and I've already mentioned them to a number of like-minded friends. Okay, um, Pagan Jim, uh, I'm with you on that. Uh, I uh, find religions, to use my favorite cliche, endlessly fascinating. And uh, I love them, but I don't believe in them. Uh, just like I love uh, 
Greek and Norse, etc., mythology. I don't believe in them, but they're all great monuments of human culture and imagination. Uh, they're all uh, terrific in many ways, though human beings being what we are, uh, we can use them for awful purposes. Uh, Islamofascism comes to mind, Ku Klux Klan comes to mind, etc., right? But I don't believe them. I used to go to church. I think I would still enjoy most of it, but haven't been in some years now. Uh, I do miss singing those hymns, though. Boy, that's great stuff. I uh, am an atheist uh, in that uh, I, I guess I'm like you. I'm an agnostic slash atheist. And for very much the same reasons... I do not have enough arrogance to think I know what's going on in the big bad universe. Uh, how the heck could I know? Uh, and, I mean, Protagoras was right. Man is the measure of all things, of the things that are that they are, the things that are not that they are not. But that uh, the whole point of that is we're limited to our senses and reason. That's not to say that, and so we got to call them as we see them. Who knows what else is out there, right? So I agree with you. I don't have a metaphysical presupposition uh, for naturalism, though that does seem to me to be the proper guide to everyday life. I, I guess my view is like uh, hero and the cynics, that you can't really answer all of these ultimate and invisible questions, but that you don't really need to. Probability is all we've got, and it's usually pretty adequate for the decisions we have to make in this life. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not an agnostic in the sense that I'm really on the fence about this. Uh, classically, as I understand it, an agnostic is supposed to be one who thinks that belief in God really is a live option. It's just impossible to be sure. And so he doesn't want to uh, will to believe one way or the other. I have to say, I, I don't really think that's the case. There might be a God, but I don't see what difference it makes if there is one. Hence, I don't see any reason to think that there is one. Anything's possible. Uh, it may be that uh, the earth is hollow uh, and that gremlins live inside. I don't think any evidence really supports that, though, so it, to me, is not a live option. Uh, it might be that uh, you know there's men in the moon, uh, but uh, seem you know there's no real reason to think so. Uh, so I mean the the Jehovah's Witnesses might be right, but but why should we think so? And I feel that way. So uh, uh, technically agnostic, but in practice an atheist. I don't believe there's no God. Hallelujah. Um, because it's not a belief, a conviction of faith. It just seems to me so highly unlikely that I can't take it seriously. But that doesn't mean I think people who are theists are a bunch of idiots. And I do not think that, because there are arguments to be made. I just find them unconvincing. But I don't think all theists are just uh, childish uh people that believe what they were told. They may be, they may not be. It's none of my business. I don't care. Uh, so that's probably more than you wanted to hear. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at, pretty much close to where you're at. A fascinating story, and I appreciate your sharing it with us, Pagan Jim.
Uh, let's see. John. I think this is John Strickland, but I'm not sure. Does, does Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist pass the criterion of embarrassment? And you know what that is, right? Uh, Jesus must have been baptized by John. No one would have made it up because uh, look at the embarrassment it caused. Uh, the, the John the Baptist disciples, and they continued for quite a while, and I think are still around today, the Mandeans, they said, hey, I mean, we know they said this because of a, an account of a debate, amazingly, uh, that we have. They said, look, our guy is the Messiah, uh, who came to whom to be baptized? Did, uh, did John uh, come to Jesus to get baptized? No, I, I don't think that's the way the story went. No, it seems to me Jesus came to John to get dunked. What does that tell you? And uh, so on. Or the idea that it was a baptism <clears throat> of repentance. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Jesus joined the crowd to confess his sins and have them cleansed. <laughs> oh, boy. Right, uh, a bit of a problem, right? So all sorts of scholars say, yeah, yeah, th th this must have happened. Who would have invented it? It's just like textual criticism. The, uh, the more difficult reading is liable to be the original. If it reads uh, more smoothly in some manuscripts, who would have screwed it up? Uh, but if it was a difficult or embarrassing reading, you can well imagine somebody trying to clean that up, so we have to assume they did, and that it's the, the weirder reading uh, that uh, was the case. For instance, in the Gospel of John, Jesus' brothers who uh, ridicule him say, hey, it's time to go to the festival. Surely you're going. You want an audience, don't you? And uh, Jesus says, I'm not going up to this feast. You go on without me. And then as soon as they're gone, he goes up. Uh, Jesus is lying? Well, what do you know? There's some manuscripts that say, um, uh, I am not going up to this feast now. You go ahead without me, and then he does go up. Okay, he waited a few minutes, so, you know, he's not going to this feast now. Look, if that's the way it originally read, would anybody have dropped out now to make Jesus into a liar? Nah, nah. Uh, or in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you've heard it was said that uh, uh, you shall not kill, but I'm telling you, that if if you are angry with your brother, you might as well have killed him. Oh boy! Uh, well, there's uh, uh, there's some manuscripts that say anyone who is angry with his brother without cause. Uh, whew. Okay, that I can handle. Now, which do you suppose was the original reading? Uh, nobody would make it so tough by cutting out. Uh, without cause. But it's obvious. Somebody said, wait a minute, th this can't be. Uh, there are plenty of reasons you could be justifiably angry at him, so let's just add that in. You see what I mean? The the more difficult reading is liable to be the original, and, and it's the same uh, way here, they figure. And, and you can see that that's reasonable, right? Who would have made this up? Who would have made such trouble for himself? But there is a bit of a problem. And now let's, uh, just in case somebody's not familiar with the debate, let's go back to, to our question. There is no reason to think that a gospel writer would not say something negative about Jesus so that any portrayal of Jesus in a negative light must be historical. 
In the Mahabharata, Hindu scripture written around the same time as the Tanakh, Hebrew Bible, the stories of the heroes are full of their foibles, mistakes, wrongdoings, and more. It is the same with the Iliad and the Odyssey, written close enough to a similar time, so the historical data shows ancient fiction and religious scripture is often written with imperfections and such to make the story believable, more interesting, relatable, and more, more entertaining for one thing. Uh, take the exa- and take the example of Jesus' baptism by John, the Baptist in the God. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, and take the example of Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist in the Gospel of Mark. This is generally taken as historically sound material about Jesus because it passes the criterion of embarrassment. In that the early church would not want to make up a story about John baptizing the Son of God, which is why later gospel writers changed the story. Uh, Now, just to take this example, there is no reason to think the story was embarrassing to Mark at all, even if later writers found it so. Mark may have just thought he was writing a beautiful story about the beginning of Jesus' ministry, where John the Baptist is passing the torch to Jesus in the same way as in 2 Kings 2, where Elijah gives a double portion of his miracle-working power to Elisha, making Elisha his successor and superior. And that's true, by the way, right? Elisha is credited with twice the miracles of Elijah. Uh, Mark certainly seems to interpret John the Baptist in terms of Elijah. Mark says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as it is written in the prophets. Mark immediately interprets John the Baptist as a forerunner of the Messiah, Allah Elijah, in 2 Kings 1.8. Mark then clothes John, uh, similar to Elijah, Mark one six, Second Kings one eight. You know the the uh, hair shirt and the leather belt. He then says John ate locusts and wild honey, the food of the wilderness in which Elijah lived, and so on and so on. Also, Mark probably didn't have the high Christology of later writers, so there would be nothing embarrassing for Mark in John baptizing Jesus. For this example, then, there's no reason to think that the criterion of embarrassment does anything to contribute to the historicity of John the Baptist's baptizing Jesus in Mark. There's therefore no reason to think John the Baptist ever baptized Jesus. What are your thoughts? Well, um, I can see how somebody might still think that it happened. Uh, And um, they'd say, well, you know, why not? Uh, It's uh, it's not that hard to believe. And I'd grant that. But I think your argument is completely right. I've kind of made it myself a bunch of times. uh, And I think this is a great case of great minds thinking alike. Uh, I always love seeing stuff like this because it sort of corroborates. Okay, I'm not the only one who sees this, right? So, (sighs) excuse me. Um, Just getting rid of a demon there. Uh, Yeah, all this shows is that somebody's belief became embarrassing or unacceptable to somebody else's uh it's uh, the 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 beliefs about jesus was he a sinner uh did he feel uh, john the baptist was a uh, was a superior authority yeah uh, you can there there've been christians 
uh, who believe Jesus had a sinful nature, even in modern times, Edward Irving, Karl Barth, probably others. And uh, and so, yeah, I, I don't see why. I believe uh, uh, Guignabert had, in his great, great book uh, called Simply Jesus, uh, he says that he thinks that the point of the story is to uh, provide a a, a a paradigm. It's like a cult legend to say you should follow Jesus into the waters of baptism. As Jesus was baptized, so should you be, uh, and that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I would say also that uh, this is so similar to the story of the the calling of the prophet Zoroaster. I mentioned this in, uh, I guess, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man. That um, And there's such pronounced Jewish borrowing from Zoroastrianism that uh, this could simply be another case of borrowing. For instance, like the, the, in, in the admittedly undateable um, chaos of Zoroastrian scripture, there is nonetheless a story in which Zoroaster, who is a son of a Vedic priest in Iran, uh, next door to India, and the Aryans uh, settled them all, um, he is he wades into a river to perform a purification rite, and as he's coming out of the water, he sees the archangel Vohumana descending from heaven with a cup, and he bids Zoroaster to drink from it, and uh, he does, and is filled with the prophetic fire, and he and uh, Vohumana tells him. It's your job to go out and preach the oneness of Ahura Mazda. And so he, he does. And no sooner does he agree and go on his way than Ahriman, the evil anti-god, appears to him and tries to tempt him to swerve off course. And Zoroaster basically says, nothing doing. Uh, you could kill me and I wouldn't uh, abandon the path marked out for me. Does that ring a bell? Uh, does that uh, ring a familiar note? Jesus goes into the river for a purifying ritual. Uh, he comes up out of the river. God, the, the spirit, whatever, the father speaks to him and says, you are my son, which presumably Jesus did not yet know, according to Mark. And uh, so he's got his mission ahead of him and goes into the desert where... Uh, he is tempted by the devil, but he will not give up. I, I don't know about you, but uh, it seems to me uh, not at all unlikely that uh, th that this came from Zoroastrianism, but suppose it didn't. Uh, that really doesn't matter. It just shows you that you could uh, have the broad outlines of such a story in the case of a of a savior or a prophet and uh, that the, uh, the the sinfulness element uh, is, uh, and even the presence of John the Baptist are simply window dressing for the point that he's undergoing a purifying ritual to befit him to uh, be God's messenger, much as in Isaiah 6, right? Isaiah is called uh, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And he, he says, okay, and uh, uh, he said, uh, you're going to 
give my word to the people. And Isaiah says, but I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What the heck does that mean? He used to curse a blue streak? No, it just means that he's not pure enough to speak the divine word. Uh, it's just like, uh, you know, priestly, uh, clean and unclean. And so in his vision, one of the seraphim grabs a burning coal of, from the, uh, the altar fire with tongs and brings it over and touches it to Isaiah's lips. And he says, now you, you can do it. Of course, this is a vision. It doesn't happen. I think of this every time I watch Iron Man. And <laughs> believe me, I watch it every time it's on, practically where uh, the uh, terrorist captors of Tony Stark and this other guy, I forget his name, uh, captured scientists, they're uh, running out of patience with Stark building a missile for him, and they grab his colleague there, and uh, the, uh, the leader similarly gets the tongs, takes out a burning cold, and nearly sticks it onto the lips of the uh, scientist course if that actually and tony prevents it but uh, if that actually happened uh, to isaiah he ain't going out to speak any words right you can imagine the prophecy that will come for there uh, not much right so it's a vision but it's the idea of a purifying act a vision rather than a ritual in this case but that's the whole idea and it seems to me uh, that uh, once you realize that would make perfect sense forget the criterion of embarrassment rather what we have here is something like uh, Paul versus James James whoever this was that wrote this understood or I should say misunderstood Pauline doctrine of justification by faith apart from works of the law it's meaning moral libertinism. So my friend Mark, uh, Mike DiGregorio at Gordon-Conwell once summed this up. Saved by grace, oh blessed thought, sin as I will and never get caught. Uh, so he says, that's absurd. Uh, listen, stupid. Uh, don't you see our father Abraham was justified by works, not by faith, etc., etc.? That makes sense, but he doesn't understand Paul. He's actually quoting Romans to show you how late this is. But if you look at uh, Romans and Galatians, that's not the point. The point is that uh, you don't have to keep all the ceremonial observances of the Torah in order to be a Christian, uh, something relevant to Gentiles. The issue is, do you have to convert to Judaism and get circumcised and swear off ham sandwiches to, to become a baptized Christian? And Romans and Galatians say, no, you don't. If you're a Jew and a Christian, you want to keep obeying the Torah, you go right ahead because that's your cultural tradition. But it's not for these guys, these ex-pagans. Why uh, force them to adopt alien cultural mores? It's irrelevant. I mean, it's no big deal for Jews to follow this. It's like a fish in water. They were raised following this. But you can ask some poor ex-Apollo worshiper to take this on. Forget it. You're just alienating people from the gospel for no good reason. That's the issue, but the writer of the epistle of James doesn't understand it anymore. He sees something offensive that wasn't there. And the same thing with Matthew looking at, at Mark and saying, what? Jesus is baptized uh, to repent of sins? No, no, it's, it's ceremonial cleansing, uh, etc. Just like Isaiah 
So anyway, sorry for for all that, but uh, these good questions start sparking uh, ideas uh, in the old geek, so I hope you'll uh, bear with me. Evan, short for Evangel, I'm sure, uh, says, I have a question about a possible reading of the meaning of Jesus' death and resurrection. As you know, the traditional understanding of Jesus' death, that it was a payment or ransom for the sins of humanity is probably one of the biggest obstacles for non-Christians in accepting the Christian story. To anyone who hasn't already been in, inculcated into the faith, it simply makes no sense that the murder of an innocent man could in any way atone for the crimes of other people. But one way in which the story could make sense recently occurred to me. If the problem is that only the guilty party can atone for the crime, and Jesus' death did indeed atone for sins of the world, then Jesus' death could be read as an implicit confession of guilt on Jesus' part, or rather, on the part of God who is incarnated as Jesus. After all, God created us and is usually thought to have done so with full knowledge of the sin we would commit and the suffering we would thereby bring into the world. Even granting the get-out clause of free will, God is still the ultimate author of everything that happens in the world. If he, if he were to accept responsibility for sin, it could make sense that he had to be punished to make up for it. A primitive and barbaric sense, but that's still more than the traditional story holds. And now that we no longer believe in the purifying power of sacrificial blood. As far as I know, this interpretation is not held by the New Testament writers, but are you aware of any Christian thinkers who have considered this as an option? What do you make of it? Well, it's fascinating. It uh, almost reminds me, of, well, it does remind me, or I would be saying this, of Thomas Altizer, that the transcendent God is kaput as of the crucifixion. The God who was alienated from us becoming transcendent instead of imminent uh, when the human race became alienated from him uh, in the myth of Eden. Uh, so there's, it's kind of like that, but you, yours is a little closer to the traditional view, though turning it on its head. I, I don't think anybody has uh, proposed this. You got a new one there. Um, this reminds me also of one of my favorite movies, which is exceedingly hard to watch. It is so powerful, The Rapture. Uh, written and directed by Michael Tolkien with uh, David Duchovny and Mimi Rogers and others. Uh, what a flick. Uh, uh, in it, the, the end of the world has come and uh, Mimi Rogers' character is there on the near side of a great crevice and uh, hell lies beyond and her daughter, whom she had sacrificed a la Abraham and Isaac because she thought God wanted her to, the, her daughter, or her shade, or ghost, or whatever, appears to her and says, Mommy, God is willing to forgive you. You just have to say you believe in him. And Mimi Rogers says, Yeah, who's going to forgive God? Ah, um, that kind of sounds like this. So, yeah, I I don't think it's uh, held by any theology, though there have been pretty uh, interesting ones. Uh, the great uh, universalist theologian Hosea Ballou 
uh, said that uh, God is the author of sin. He did set it in motion and so on. I, I love a guy that will make, uh, that will advertise a sermon uh, with the title, God the Author of Sin. And he believed that uh, that what was going on with the cross was that God was bringing an end to animal sacrifices or atonement schemes of any kind. It was sort of like the example theory, the moral influence version of Peter Abelard and the judicial version of uh, Hugo Grotius. Only in this case, it was to show the futility of sacrificial atonement. And Ballou had this great analogy for the traditional view. He said, now picture some nut trying to assassinate the president and they grab him before he can do it and he is sentenced to death. Uh, Suppose before he could be hanged, the president himself intervenes and says, no, I want to take the place of my would-be assassin on the gallows. What would you think of this? Would this be justice in any form? Uh, And he says, this is like the God against whom we have sinned, becoming a man in order to take the punishment that men and women have uh, deserved from... uh, uh, wounding him, so to speak, offending against his honor. Allah Anselm says, nobody could possibly think this was uh, justice. What what would justice mean? Uh, What are you talking about? Uh, And or on the idea that that Jesus was paying the debt, also an Anselmian idea. Suppose a guy says, you know, I am owed a huge debt I think I'll let the creditor, uh, the debtor off the hook and I'll pay the debt to myself. What do you mean? It's not just would it be right, but what are you talking about? What are you thinking? And, and it's amazing how people say, Jesus died for you. Huh? What do you mean? I could understand if you're saying he died for Barabbas, right? He literally takes the place of a guy that would have been killed otherwise. But that's not really the point. What is the point? How could him... I mean, it's not like he's paying my parking fine. Uh, and I think there's this confusion. Uh, th- this debt metaphor for sin really spins it off in the wrong direction. Uh, it's uh, it's not tort law. It's criminal law we're talking about. So uh, what, a, what a mess. Uh, yours uh, is kind of a, an interesting... Uh, notion. I think that deserves more thought. Nice going, Evan. Uh, well, I'm in a gab and mood today, so let's take a look at another one uh, from uh, Jorby, longtime Bible geek with a heck of an imagination. Uh, wait a minute, is this? No, this can't be. Wait a second. I'm sorry to be so confusing. Oh, boy. I wonder if this is all Jorby or if I have run two together. The typeface is right, but at any rate, whoever it is, since it's my first time writing you, that's not Jorby, I thought I should give a little background on myself so you know who I am again. Bring it on. 
I was baptized in a Presbyterian church in Grand Rapids, Michigan, but I stopped going to church when I was around eight years old. Family lore is that the instigation for this was that I was unable to believe in the resurrection. Honestly, all I remember from that time is that I used to spend the service drawing dinosaurs in the church bulletin. Hallelujah! Uh, Anyway, around this time, I became an agnostic believer in God, uh, and this rejection of faith from me touched off my dad's quest for the historical Jesus. In the course of this, he became born again as an atheist. He had previously rejected the Christian Reformed Church while going to Calvin College. By the way, does anybody know what superhero attended Calvin College? Of course, it was Al Pratt, the Adam. Anyway, and I joined him on the road to hell. I had flirtations with Gnosticism and Buddhist meditation in college. Uh, This did not lead me to enlightenment, but the meditation solved some sleep issues I had, so it was worth it. However, at the same time, I began to study physics, and as I continued into a Ph.D. program, of which I am in the fifth year now, I found that the mysteries of nature were enough uh, for my puny ape brain, and I had no need for anything mystical outside of the material world. Yeah, I know what you mean. I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, when I was taking an astronomy course at Montclair State way back when... I remember thinking of this incredible scale of the universe. It's like, forget philosophy. Uh, Of course, I wouldn't go that far, but this is already, like you say, enough to boggle the mind. Of course, what I really was saying was this by itself raises huge philosophical issues. Anyway, sorry. Uh, The first book I read of yours was The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, which I plucked off my dad's bookshelf a few years ago and devoured in a matter matter of days. It's, It's best with salt, by the way. But my most recent interest in early Christianity was touched off when a Richard Carrier video was suggested to me by YouTube after I'd watched umpteen Christopher Hitchens videos. I read uh, Carrier's books, Proving History and On the Historicity of Jesus, and my own quest for the history of the Bible was ignited. Somehow I found your Bible Geek podcast, which leads me finally to my questions. I'm interested in how the Ishtar Tammuz and Isis Osiris myths factor into the development of proto-Christianity. Am I correct in viewing these as basically the same myth? Is it possible that descendants of the Jewish diaspora maintained a veneration of the Ishtar Tammuz myth into the turn of the millennium? Am I correct that the Isis Osiris myth was popular around the first centuries B.C. and A.D.? If the previous two questions have an affirmative answer, and they do, uh, could the worshippers of Ishtar Tammuz uh, have practiced alongside those of Isis Osiris, perhaps in the same communities? And if this is the case, could this have been a mode of transmission of the Osiris mystery religion into a strain of Judaism? Is it possible to reconcile the idea that I gleaned from reading the great angel uh, that Jesus was viewed as some kind of manifestation of Yahweh with Jesus 
the Jesus myths incorporation of elements from Ishtar Tammuz, Isis Osiris, and the Osiris mystery religion. I think I answered this one once before. Uh, could the figure of Jesus as Yahweh and the Christ as a resurrected Osiris slash Tammuz have been one time... S- Let me read that again. Could the figure of Jesus as Yahweh and the Christ as resurrected Osiris Tammuz have been one time separate figures that was few that were fused into Jesus Christ hyphenated as I believe you have suggested how to how to Philo in the communities of Alexandria, which I understand to have been a very cosmopolitan city where many ideas mixed factor into all this um uh, yeah, I, I believe I did go over this again, but let me just briefly say that uh, I don't think you have to wait for the diaspora to see a Jewish embrace of both Osiris and um, Tammuz, because Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 8, depicts the daughters of Jerusalem as engaged in ritual mourning and lamenting for Tammuz, which means it was part of the death and resurrection ritual of that god. These are women in Jerusalem, which Ezekiel is pointing out as a disgrace from his standpoint as a temple priest. Uh, We also know that Jews must have been familiar with the Osiris religion from way back since uh, Egypt ruled Palestine or Canaan, whatever you want to call it, during the third millennium BCE. And indeed, I think it's pretty obvious that Joseph is uh, a Jewish version, a Hebrew version of the Osiris myth. Uh, So I think that, uh, and and Margaret Barker, I think, is certainly right that though orthodoxy at some point tried to repress and eject these myths from the Jewish consciousness it didn't didn't work it couldn't work that never works and so that these beliefs were around for a long time and uh, Jesus is simply another version of Osiris or Tammuz or various others Uh, so yeah I think that's correct and um, you can tie this in even with Yahweh, who I think, a la Geovedengren, uh, must have been a dying and rising god himself, like Marduk, who he resembles in so many ways, who in his battle against uh, Tiamat and Apsu, the, the chaos dragons, uh, was devoured, but then came back, uh, and uh, that, uh, and then he killed the dragons, made the world from their carcasses, and became the new king of gods, that that was the Baal myth, and that was the Jesus myth, or the the Jehovah myth. Uh, So this was an ancient inheritance that never died out. So this would uh, fit uh, Christ mythicism real well, though of course you could go Bultmann's route and say these were simply the categories in which Jesus was uh, interpreted, which is a way of saying he was made into a myth. It's as if you said he was Superman today. It really doesn't tell you anything about the historical Jesus. Uh, But um, mm, let me see. So yeah, there's really no contradiction between the... uh, great angel hypothesis and Christ mythicism, though I don't believe uh, Margaret Barker is a mythicist. 
Uh, let's see, Philo uh, supplies the essentials of uh, New Testament Christology when he talks about the, the Logos, uh, also the, called the heavenly Adam, the heavenly high priest, the Son of God, etc. And the Logos uh, appeared in history in the form of the various patriarchs. Now, that's... Uh, we don't know if he would have said they were incarnations or if the, as literary characters they stand for uh, the, the Logos, but it's so close you really have to uh, suspect that this has a lot of direct influence on the, on the Johannine, Pauline writings and uh, Hebrews. Um, uh, again, Gordon Rylands, who I mentioned before, he makes a persuasive case I think it's he uh, or is it Whitaker uh, in his book on the Pauline epistles I'm not sure if they're both uh, Dutch radicals uh, they, they argue that uh, that Philo and what we hear about some other sectarians uh, in Judaism at the time developed the Logos concept and tied it in with the son of man and that we've already got the mythic Christology forming before a guy named Jesus is ever attached to it. So yeah, the syncretistic cosmopolitan thought world of ancient Alexandria may have had an awful lot of uh, uh, influence and in fact some of these scholars believe that Christianity began there in Alexandria and that it was assimilated into Judaism as it traveled north and, and east. Interesting possibilities. Um, uh, now, this, I think, is Jorby. Uh, do holy mackerels worship the Lord thy cod? I look forward to your answer with bated breath just for the halibut. All I said was, this halibut is good enough for Jehovah. Well, I guess they do, and that would sure explain the origin of the ichthus sign. Thanks, Jorby. Here's a short one from Schizofuel. Not sure I got the pun there, but the Gospels allude to the wise men who visit Jesus and his family at the time of his birth and are, says they're knowledgeable of astronomy. Could this be Christianity's first attempt to make Jesus acceptable to science? Uh, could be, but... Uh, um, hmm, hmm, hmm. There seems to be little concern with that. We do have a reading of this story in the Arabic Gospel of the Infancy, I don't know how old that is. It's got to be probably a century or so later than the latest gospel. But they tried to explain what Parsi or Zoroastrian magi would have been doing coming to uh, greet the birth of, of Jesus. And, well, of course, Matthew says that they saw his natal star. And uh, these, the, the author of the Arabic infancy gospel tells us something else that Zoroaster had predicted the coming uh, of the, I guess it was the Seoshians, their uh, uh, sort of second coming of Zoroaster and Messiah figure, and that uh, they, that the uh, Magi somehow knew that that was Jesus. 
so uh, interesting. But this uh, suggests to me that on one hand, it was simply an attempt to say, like in Titus, I think, even one of their own poets has said, uh, saying uh, that, uh, or the Sibylline oracles written by Jews and Christians trying to make it look like the pagans predicted biblical events. Um, but the thing in Matthew, that is interesting because there was a, a major view that you should not consult the stars to find out your future any more than you should consult the dead through mediums. Well, Matthew certainly seems open to the idea uh, of astrology, and I think there was Jewish astrology. I know there was in medieval times, but I'm pretty sure there must have been because of the role of the stars in books like Enoch, uh, which try to uh, set forth in, in these apocalyptic terms, as if they were revealed by God, the cosmology of the ancient rabbis who were natural philosophers, as we call them, pre-technological scientists, uh, like, the, like Thales and Anaximander, uh, they were setting forth their views of how, how the elements worked and where the stars were and the rain. Was there a treasury of rain or of stars or of snowflakes? And Enoch gets a guided tour of all this. Uh, well, um, I uh, when these stars were connected with angels and every uh, country had a patron angel and you're mighty close to astrology there so uh, I would think that it's not necessarily an attempt to harmonize Christianity with the science of the day but it just reflects that as uh, astrology as a uh, as part of the cognitive furniture of, of the ancient world that uh, Matthew knew about and other Jews did too. Again take a look at Molina's excellent book uh, the genre and message of the book of Revelation astrology gone wild let's see okay I guess that's it for today and I'll be back with you again pretty soon I hope with yet another Bible geek and if you're feeling uh, charitable uh, the old geek and his family uh, could sure use your uh, your help but as always if you're not so inclined or unable don't you worry about it uh, thanks for being with us and I will see you soon again on the Bible Geek The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergeant Yovanovitch. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.